0: This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. We are going to wrap up 1 Peter chapter 3 this morning. If you have your Bibles with you and want to start heading there. As you are, I want you to imagine tomorrow. You're going to run into someone you know who's having a a tough time. Maybe they've lost their job. Maybe they're having marriage issues. Maybe someone close to them is very sick. Some way, shape, or form, they're having a tough time. But tomorrow you're going to have the opportunity to share the gospel with them. So what would you say? How would you share the gospel with someone having a difficult time? How would you make the gospel appealing to someone who is struggling or facing heartache? The reason I ask you those questions is this How would you share the gospel? If it was guaranteed to make their life worse? How would you share the gospel if it was guaranteed to bring your hearer more suffering and persecution? Because for the last two weeks, Peter has been calling us to do some things that will almost certainly cause us suffering. In chapter 2, verse 12, Peter told us to keep our conduct honorable among unbelievers. And then he went on to explain how that honorable conduct looks like submission to human institutions, even if they're evil or unjust. Now, certainly our submission to governments and bosses and and even husbands might cause us some discomfort, but for Peter's original hearers, it was certain to make their lives harder. Peter was calling them to submit to maniacal emperors like Nero and masters who they had to obey and husbands who could treat their, lives, their wives like property if they wanted to. You see, many of the people Peter was writing to, they didn't have rights like you and I do. Now, to be sure, Peter is not calling these people to submit to ungodly things. But we as American Christians are prone to confuse unbiblical with unconstitutional. For example, Peter is telling his first readers that if your government segregates Christians to a certain area, if your government requires Christians to pay higher taxes just because they're Christian, if your government requires Christians to serve on the front line of every battle, then you submit to them. Peter's telling his first listeners, and these are some of the things that his people would have had to endure. He's telling his first listeners if your superior, if your master, if your boss requires you to work five 14-hour days or six 14-hour days or they don't pay you or the only job they let you have is to, to empty the latrines for the next 10 years, you submit to them. Peter's telling his first listeners if your husband says that you're not allowed to go certain places or you're not allowed to wear certain clothes or you have to eat what he tells you to eat, You submit to him. You see, as uncomfortable as these past couple of weeks may have been for us, we need to understand that what Peter is saying was certain to cause suffering for his audience. So the question that Peter can hear us asking, along with them, it's a question that he knows is going to come up in the mind of everyone listening to him, regardless of their situation, is why should I do this? Is there something more to this than just suffering like a good Christian? In other words, our God knows that after calling us to these kind of difficult things that we need some encouragement. We need some some inspiration. We need some motivation. Which is why this morning through Peter our God wants to convince us that blessing is found in suffering. That blessing is found in suffering. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 8, where Peter will show us first that the blessing of escape is sometimes found in suffering. He says in verse 8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy brotherly love a tender heart and a humble mind do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling but on the contrary bless for the, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing now we've already seen peter do this before he likes this format where he gives us both the positive and the negative of a command The positive, he says, is have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. You'll notice how all of those have something to do with how we relate to other people, how we bless them. But here's where we begin to see Peter's growth as a person. The same guy who asked, how many times should I forgive? The same guy who was quick to pull out his sword for those who were threatening Jesus Now he says that this brotherly love and humility and and tenderheartedness isn't just for those who show us the same. He says, I'm talking about blessing everyone, even those who slander and do evil to you. The government does evil to you. Bless them. Your master does evil to you. Bless them. Your husband is uncaring and unloving. Bless him. I I have to think that Jesus' words must have been ringing in Peter's ears while he was writing this. If you'll remember when Jesus said, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods. I want you to hear this, Americans. To the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. That runs right up my spine because I worked hard for those goods. What is your impulse when someone slanders you? I know what my answer to that question is. What is your response when someone you don't respect demands your submission? What's your response when you know your boss is just using you to further their career? Because Peter says, do not repay evil to them, but bless them. And he says at the end of verse 9, listen to this, here is his argument. He says, bless them so that you may obtain a blessing. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. Blessed to obtain a blessing. Which means we've got to ask the question, why did Peter use the following quote? Because I've told you this before, that little word at the beginning of verse 10, for, can be translated as what? Because, good. So when Peter says, blessed that you may obtain a blessing, he then says, because, and then he quotes this psalm, which is Psalm 34. It's a weird psalm. It's an interesting psalm. It's got so much history behind it. We have to ask, why did he quote this psalm? He says, whoever desires, in verse 10, he says, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So what does it look like for the eyes of the Lord to be on the righteous or for him to care for the righteous and his ears to be closed to those who do evil? What might that look like? Well, David said he wrote Psalm 34 about the time when he acted nuts in front of the Philistines. You might know this story. David had already been anointed king by God, but Saul hadn't been removed from the throne yet. And to make matters worse, Saul knows that David was anointed as king, and so Saul's trying to kill David. So the reason Peter uses this psalm, is because not only did David not try to take the throne from Saul, but while Saul was trying to kill him, David blessed Saul. David submitted to Saul, even though he had been anointed as king. Twice Saul tried to kill David, and twice David blessed him, and said he wasn't going to harm Saul, even though he had the chance, because Saul was king. But Saul didn't care. He continued to try to kill David. So at one point, David didn't have any other option but to flee to the Philistines. Now here's the problem. If you remember the Philistines, they were not fond of David. For one, he had killed their favorite giant named Goliath. And two, after that circumstance, this little little song came about that went, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. That little ditty was about the Philistines. So David's only path of escape from Saul was to the hometown of his enemies. And the servants of the Philistine king saw David in their city. In 1 Samuel chapter 21, beginning in verse 12, and I'm going to paraphrase this. You can look it up if you want. It basically says that David was very afraid of the king of Gath. It's the Philistine king. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane. It says he drooled and he wrote nonsense on the wall. And so the the servants took David to the king and the king said, Behold, you can tell this guy is nuts. Why did you bring him to me? Do I need more crazy people in my city? Should I invite him over to dinner, he says. Get him out of here. They let him go. There used to be a candy store down by the post office here that sold candy incredibly cheap. For just a few dollars, you could buy a... Grocery sack worth of candy. So scraping a a, a few bucks together and riding our bikes to this place was a summertime favorite when we were young. So one day we wanted to go to this candy store, but my friend explained that we needed to go quickly while his mom was in town because he had been grounded (laughs) from going to the bottom of the hill. So the good friend that I am, I said, well, we better make it quick so your mom doesn't see you. Let's go. So we are screaming down this hill, and I'm not joking, I mean the hill that I live on now, if you've been to my house, we are going very fast, as fast as our bikes will take us, when around the corner his mom, we see her start coming up the hill. So my friend thought he could get out of it if he just rode off the side of the road at full speed. And I'm following behind, he's in front of me, I'm behind, and and at first, the first thing that immediately happened was his feet came off of the pedals and it kind of looked like he was riding a bull through through the weeds. And then he hit a stump or a rock or something, and that catapulted him into the air, skidded to a stop in the dirt. And that's not the funny part. The funny part was that his mom stopped on the road, marched over into the dirt, grabbed her son, took him back, chucked him into the van, shut the door, marched back over into the weeds, grabbed his bike, chucked it in the back of the van, and took off. I never saw that friend again. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. I did. The point is, is we will do some crazy things to stay out of trouble, won't we? The point is that when you look at Psalm 34, the amazing thing that begins to emerge is that David saw his acting crazy as God providing him an escape. Let me read you a few other things David said in this psalm that that Peter is quoting a chunk of here. In Psalm 34, David said, About that time he acted nuts in front of the Philistines. He said, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. In fact, Let me ruin a verse for many of you that I guarantee you have somewhere in your house. might even be written in paint on your kitchen nook wall. Possibility. Psalm 34, about this this thing, says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So write this down. The Bible is telling us that, that if you ever feel threatened, just act like you're nuts and you'll get out of it. What I don't want you to miss is that David doesn't see the time he drooled and wrote nonsense on the wall as just a a fanatical act of desperation. No, David wants everyone to taste and see the goodness of the Lord when he provided me a way out of certain destruction by drooling like a madman. That's how much David trusted God. And that psalm is what Peter uses to explain our blessing. The eyes of the Lord are on those who seek peace and pursue it like David did with Saul. And Peter wants us to know that that there is blessing found in suffering. And sometimes, sometimes the blessing found in suffering is escape. Look at verse 13. Peter concludes, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? In other words, if God doesn't want you to be harmed, you won't be harmed. Sometimes the blessing found in suffering is escape, but what if that isn't the case? What if our effort to bless those who hate us just turns into more suffering? Well, I want you to notice next in verse 14 that Peter tells us, yet while the blessing of escape is sometimes found in suffering, he says the blessing of opportunity is often found in suffering. Look at verse 14. He says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. What reaction does suffering provoke in you? Do you strive to get away from it? Or or defend yourself from it? Or or maybe even do you think suffering is, is because of something you did wrong against God? Some kind of punishment. If so, what Peter wants to do is completely reorient your perspective of suffering. He wants to remind us that despite how much we dislike it, suffering is never this cosmic mistake, something out of God's control. Peter is saying that suffering is often a God-ordained, blessed opportunity for us to share the hope we have in Christ. Peter is saying, even if you suffer at the hands of maniacal leaders or unjust bosses or unbelieving spouses, just be ready to share why you're not afraid of them. In fact, he says, by doing so, you will put them to shame. when they continue to slander and revile and and do evil to you, just continue to bless them and watch the people around you begin to ask, how can you do that? A pastor friend of mine in Michigan told me an incredible story about a couple at their church who they were good friends with. What happened was it had come to light that the wife was not just unfaithful she had been a serial adulteress for many years see the husband traveled occasionally for his job and it it came out that most times when he was gone his wife would meet different men at motels and and even their house naturally everyone was equal parts confused and devastated that such a thing could happen right under their nose. So in the face of of such devastating news and with some very biblical options on the table, the first time they met, this pastor friend of mine asked the husband how he wanted to proceed. And the husband's answer was, if she will repent, I would like her to be my wife. So here's a woman who had repeatedly, consciously reviled and done evil towards her husband. And his response was to bless her with love. How many of you are wondering if there's something wrong with that husband? I would say that even we are puzzled by what Peter is calling us to do when we see it in action. Is your suffering, does it ever cross your mind when pain and and unjustness and and things go wrong with you, does it ever cross our mind that, that God is actually blessing us with an opportunity to display our hope? Or is the first thing that crosses our mind just, just, I don't like it, stop it, run away from it? If we can guard ourselves from becoming absorbed with our own discomfort, we won't miss the God-ordained opportunity that lies right in front of us. Look look what Peter said in verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good. Suffer for doing good. You did what's right in your suffering. And Peter says, if that should be God's will. God wills us sometimes to suffer for doing good. Because the blessed opportunity of sharing the gospel is often found in suffering. And this husband is just one of many question-provoking, hope-filled Christian sufferers throughout history. All the way back to Stephen, who asked God to forgive those who were stoning him. To to martyrs of the faith in the 15th and 16th century, like Hugh Latimer and and Thomas Bilney, who, who died with songs of forgiveness and courage on their lips until their lips melted in the fire. Many Christians today, brothers and sisters, suffering is often a God-ordained opportunity to let the hope of the gospel shine. When submission to tyrannical government causes suffering, when unjust masters take advantage of us, even if our spouses or our closest friends slander and revile us, if we can look to our Savior... Instead of ourselves, those times are often gospel charged opportunities to to display our hope. To explain, not with malice and ridicule and sarcasm, but with gentleness and respect, the power and majesty and hope and refuge that our God is. But we have to not focus on ourselves. The blessing of escape is sometimes found in suffering, but the blessing of opportunity is often found in suffering. Which leads to the last way that Peter wants to encourage us. But before we get there, I want to go back to the questions that I asked you at the beginning. How how would you share the gospel if it was guaranteed to make your listener's life worse? What about the gospel is appealing if it is guaranteed to cause more suffering and more persecution? Because what I didn't mention at the beginning is that we as Americans live in a kind of historical bubble. The idea of the Christian faith being accepted, much less for much of American history, applauded. It's a historical oddity. Only 5% of Christians that have ever existed live in a country at a time when Christianity was accepted by their culture. Meaning for 95% of Christians that have ever lived, the gospel made their life harder. For 95% of Christians who ever lived, the gospel was certain to cause its hearers persecution and suffering. And here's what's more interesting. In those cultures that accept Christianity, by and large, the gospel languishes. Christians are lethargic. Uh, Conversions are sporadic. But countless studies have shown that the more suffering and persecution that is at stake, the more the gospel thrives. The worse the suffering, the more underground churches thrive and the deeper the gospel takes root. So what about the gospel is so appealing if it's going to make your life worse? That blows the American gospel right out of the water. How do you share the gospel when like in Peter's time, it's almost certain to cause suffering? Here's the answer. The blessing of escape is sometimes found in suffering. The blessing of opportunity is often found in suffering. But in verse 18, Peter begins to bring us to the point that the blessing of hope is always found in suffering. The blessing of hope is always found in suffering. He says in verse 18, Let's go back to 17, because we got another because. He says there, it is better to suffer for doing what is good. He tells us to be ready to, 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 to give an answer for the hope that is in us. Verse 18, because Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. What about the gospel is appealing when it's guaranteed to make someone's life worse? Peter makes the answer very clear. When you take a more comfortable life out of the gospel, the only thing you're left with Is the beauty and power and victory of Jesus Christ on the cross? He becomes the hope that we need to be prepared to answer for. He is the refuge that will always be provided for those who love Him. Because He is the one who was victorious over sin and death on the cross. You see, when we remove the idea of the comfort of this life out of the gospel, when that is eliminated for us, we're forced to explain to people there is something more important than this life. We have to explain that hardship on this earth is not our biggest concern. That sin and and the potential for eternal judgment is a far bigger issue than how you're being treated by your government. And that truth, that truth that there's more to to, to us than this life, it unlocks the door to the beauty and the majesty of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus defeated sin and death on the cross on our behalf, all we have to do is trust Him, and we have the hope of eternity... Through grace. And Jesus ain't stingy with his grace. What in the world is this little bit about Noah? What does it have to do with anything? Was Peter just cruising along in his letter, and he said, "Hey, you know what? I'll do. I'm going to write something here that has nothing to do with what I'm saying, but I'm just going to throw it in there to give theologians something to argue about for a few hundred years." Of course, that's not the answer. He goes through this bit about Noah and Jesus descending, and then he says baptism, which corresponds to verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what in the world is this about Noah and baptism? Peter has been calling us to bless those who revile us and do evil toward us. But what about them? Is God just going to let them slide? Will we go unvindicated in our suffering? Well, Peter wants us to know that the answer is absolutely not. So the reason Peter uses this little piece about Noah is because when you think about being reviled and slandered, aside from Jesus... There wasn't anyone who was more alone than Noah. It was literally Noah against the world. Everyone else alive at that time called Noah a lunatic for obeying God. So here's what I think Peter is describing in this section and why he puts it down here. I think Peter is describing that after Jesus conquered death, he went and proclaimed his victory... To those who had persecuted and slandered his people in the past, like those who persecuted Noah. Let me put it in terms that we maybe could understand in our vernacular. I believe that what Peter is saying is that after Jesus defeated the cross, he descended into hell to those who had defeated or who had persecuted his people, and he said, Booyah, I won! You lost. I was right. You were wrong. And those people that you persecuted, they're mine. And now I have the authority to judge you. He stepped out in front of the people who he saved and told the people who hadn't received judgment yet that judgment was coming because he had defeated death and sin on the cross. So whether it was fallen angels, this is just some of, the, some of the dispute, whether it was fallen angels or humans, what Peter is saying is that Jesus went and proclaimed his victory on the cross to those who thought they'd won. He proclaimed that there is now no question who won and who lost. And that same salvation and that same vindication is awaiting you and I, If. If. We're okay with Christ doing the vindicating. Because it's his victory, not ours. The blessing of hope is always found in suffering. Just like Noah was saved from the flood by the ark, you and I have been saved from destruction by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our ark. Therefore, just like Noah, no matter how bad it gets, even if it's you versus the world, the blessing of hope is always found in suffering. That ark will float. And just to put an exclamation point on our encouragement... Following this section where Peter has called us to be subject to governments, subject to to masters, subject to even unbelieving husbands, if we need any more confidence, if we need any more encouragement, if we need any more inspiration to continue displaying our Savior to the world, look what Peter says at the end of verse 22. Speaking of Jesus, who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. We bless those who persecute us because ultimately all angels, all powers, all authorities have been subjected to Christ because of His victory over sin and death. Brothers and sisters, do we need more hope than that? If we are persecuted by our government, they are subject to Jesus Christ. If we are persecuted by our masters, they are subject to Jesus Christ. If we are treated unfairly by an unbelieving spouse, they are subject to Jesus Christ. When we are reviled, Jesus is victorious. When we are hated, Jesus is victorious. When evil is done to us, Jesus is victorious. So listen. What Peter is trying to explain to us is, I understand what I've just asked you to do might cause your life to fall apart. It might make everything you hold dear come into question. But if everything in your life is falling down around you, if if everyone you know is turning against you, if someone you're subject to even is exploiting and mistreating you, you have the hope all of them, every single one, every angel, every authority, and every power has been subjected to Jesus Christ because He defeated sin and death on the cross. Therefore, there is always, always, always blessing found in suffering for those who believe in Jesus. Because the worst thing, the worst thing this world can do to us is give us the blessed opportunity to display the depth and the width and the strength and the endurance of the hope we have in our Savior's victory. That's our, that's our encouragement this morning.